Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 29 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The names of some individuals mentioned in this episode have been changed to protect their identities. Walk Among Us is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Within three months, 16 children were removed from their homes in a small island community and taken into the care of social services. The media explained the reasoning behind the removal. They claimed the children had been the victims of satanic abuse. Three decades later, the Orkney child abuse scandal remains one of the most notorious child protection failures in the United Kingdom. Orkney was named as the best place to raise children in the 2016 Bank of Scotland Children's Quality of Life survey. 
situated in the Northern Isles of Scotland. It's an archipelago of around 20 inhabited islands. 30 years before Orkney was praised as a prime location to start a family, many believed it to have been the place of the ritualistic abuse of children by an organised satanic ring. The sequence of events that led to this conclusion began with a large family known in the media as the W family. However, they will be referred to as the Williams family in this episode. The family moved around a great deal. Each time they relocated to somewhere new, the move was often preempted by the suspicions of locals or school teachers who were convinced that some form of abuse was taking place. By the late 1980s, there were 15 children in the family, which was headed by an extremely abusive father. Accounts from the Williams children revealed just a fraction of the horrors that were inflicted behind closed doors. While living in Rousey, an island in Orkney, the family came to the attention of social workers after one of the boys was seen by teachers at his school with what was described as textbook physical signs of abuse on his body. This boy was often singled out in his home, receiving the worst of the abuse. His treatment was unrelenting, cruel and brutal. Unbeknownst to teachers, neighbours and social workers, the youngster was forced to sleep outside without any clothing or blankets for warmth. On the rare occasion he felt brave enough to come into the house, his father would beat him, force him to eat his own feces and make him eat the scraps from the other children's plates. Bruises like those left on his body were hard to hide. One of the Williams' children, Esther, describes the injuries she sustained in her book, If Only I Had Told. She recalls not being allowed to take off her tights in physical education because her father knew the teachers would see the cuts and bruises that had been inflicted by his steel toe-capped boots. Esther said he would hold the siblings by the shoulders he repeatedly kicked their shins, splitting the skin and causing deep bruising that made any type of movement painful. Aside from the boots, Esther's brother Henry wrote in his book, Whatever Happened to the W Children, about the other items his father would use in the abuse. An orange rubber glove, with a long sleeve thick enough to grab handfuls of nettles which he would then shove inside the children's clothes for long periods of time. Thick pipes which would cause deep painful bruises and welts across their small frames, and a long thick stick which would be used to whip their skin, causing sharp stinging wounds. There was seldom a time where the children's mother was not pregnant, it seemed as though she was oblivious to the awful things her partner was subjecting the youngsters to. The household had extensive rules enforced by their father. The children were not allowed to go to bed without permission, 
When they did try to sleep, they would crawl under their beds to stay out of their father's line of sight. He frequently came looking for someone, anyone to torture. The youngest children, who had no choice but to live at home, cried themselves to sleep, but quietly enough to not antagonise their father. Some of the older children had managed to leave and fend for themselves away from the misery, but their experiences never left them. After one of the boys was seen with telltale physical signs of abuse, a social worker was sent to the island of Rousey to speak with the Williams family. The father had been informed that a social worker was coming, so he had time to make sure the house was clean. The children were clothed and fed and told to make it seem like their home was a happy and thriving household. He would watch from the window with binoculars, having full knowledge of when the ship from the mainland would dock. The children had been warned against trusting social workers. Their father told them that, quote, They take nasty, lying children and lock them away in children's prisons where they torture them. The boy who had been subjected to the worst abuse was eventually sent to a school on the mainland in Raddery. The residential state school on the Black Isle was the home to children with social, educational and behavioural needs, so although it was a place of refuge from the abuse in the Williams household, The school itself was later exposed as being far from a place of safety. On the weekends, the boy was allowed to return home, but the abuse did not stop. His father had learned to be more careful, knowing that his son would be out of his reach when the boy returned to school. It would not be long before the Williams family moved again, scooping up all the children and their belongings, although still remaining in Orkney, relocating to the island of South Ronaldsey. This time their new home was an isolated farm, away from prying eyes. Knowing from experience that cuts and bruises on the youngsters drew unwanted attention, their father began to inflict injuries that were harder to spot, like pinching and twisting the skin beneath the children's armpits until it bled. When he could not abuse the children or just when he felt like it, he practised his sadistic and cruel tendencies on the family's pets. If you would prefer not to listen to the details, please skip ahead ten seconds. Their father would tie the animals up just out of reach of food and water and leave them to starve to death. After the boy who had been sent to Raddery tried to take his life, he disclosed the extent of the abuse he and his siblings had been subjected to at home. His father was arrested and convicted of child abuse in 1987. Most of the children had been too afraid to testify against their father, but physical examinations proved there had been severe abuse in the home. Many of the girls had been sexually abused for years too. 
one of the Williams children Esther wrote in her book, every day in our house was a living nightmare, revolving around dad's moods. Each morning he would whack us awake with the stick. He'd beat us for the simplest of things, for infractions against his orders that only existed in his head. He only ever seemed to get pleasure from hurting us kids. Every day was filled with his mind games and traps that we always fell into so Dad could justify abusing us. With their father behind bars, the Williams children should have been allowed to reclaim their childhood. Their mother began to be the mother she should always have been now that she was free from her husband's control. The children tried to distance themselves from the stigma attached to their father. The family changed their surname using their mother's maiden name. South Ronaldsey was a small island community. Many of the inhabitants had lived there for their entire lives, as had the generations before them. The local minister, Reverend Morris Mackenzie, tried to help the Williams family, as did his wife, Jan. The children had been so controlled their entire lives that the sudden removal of their father's rule left them without any structure. They were labelled as being, quote, different or wild. At school, many of the children were victims of bullying, as the criminal case against their father made it into the papers and was big news on the island. Clippings were brought in by other students who would read aloud the details of what the Williams children had endured. Though their father was in prison, the rest of the family was still suffering. As a result, some of the children chose to leave education but those who were under 16 asked to attend a school on the mainland, like the one at Raddery. Due to their father's abuse conviction, the children were under supervision orders by Orkney Social Services. The lasting effects of the prolonged physical, mental and sexual abuse caused some of the children to become emotionally disturbed. In 1989, they were temporarily taken into the care of social workers. After three weeks, the children were allowed to return home. At a panel hearing in relation to the Williams children's case, the Orkney children's reporter Catherine Kemp asked to terminate the supervision order because the children all appeared to be doing well. A panel reporter's duty is to receive referrals about children who are raising concerns and then investigate and decide if intervention is needed by social workers. The children's reporter is independent from social workers on Orkney Islands Council and the Royal Scotland Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Children, also known as the RSSPCC. Sue Miller, the family's social worker, disagreed with the reporter's findings and asked for an extension, which was allowed. Catherine Kemp was suspended in March 1990 and replaced by interim reporter Gordon Sloan. Speaking about the Williams children, Catherine Kemp later said, 
They were a family who suddenly had a huge pressure removed from them, a huge feeling of relief, if you like, and they were beginning to start to function, to try and make a normal life for themselves without their father. So to suddenly be told by the social work department that they were going to take matters into their own hands and do things their way and that they expected me to conform to what they wanted certainly caused rising tension. The director for social work at the time was Paul Lee and interim reporter Gordon Sloan was presented with further alarming information about the Williams family. Apparently some of the Williams' children had implied that there was still abuse occurring, not only at the hands of their older siblings but also from members of the community. One of the most emotionally disturbed children was a 15-year-old girl known only as O.W., who will be referred to as Olive in this podcast. She had begun displaying behaviours that concerned her mother enough to seek the help of social workers and psychiatrists. Olive was receiving weekly care and therapy sessions. In one session on October 30th, 1990, she allegedly disclosed information that would lead to one of the most notorious child abuse scandals in the UK. November 6, 1990, social workers and police officers went to South Ronaldsea with orders to take the seven youngest children from the Williams family into care under place of safety orders. One of the children, Henry, who has since chosen to identify himself publicly, was called to the headmaster's office of a grammar school he was then attending. In his book, Henry details the moment he realised he was being placed into care. His teary-eyed teacher apologised to him before telling Henry that he was being taken to a place of safety. Five of the other children were removed from their primary school. One of the boys was terrified and hid in a cubicle in the bathroom. The teacher, one of the very few adults the boy trusted, spoke with him from the other side of the locked door and told him it was safe to come out. The police were gone. When he opened the door, the boy was immediately removed and taken to a children's home in Kirkwall on Orkney's mainland, along with the other children who had been taken from school. The siblings were not given the chance to bring spare clothing or say goodbye to their mother. She had no idea her children had been taken into care until social workers arrived at the farm to take her youngest, a three-year-old. At the time, the little girl was out with one of Mrs. Williams' adult children, so before the social workers could return to take the child away, the family sought sanctuary in the church with Reverend Morris Mackenzie and his wife. The police agreed to let Mrs. Williams take the three-year-old to a panel meeting the following morning. As Mrs. Williams spent the night saying goodbye to her youngest child, the other six children who had been taken into care were flown to the mainland 
and separated into different foster homes and residential schools. Following the panel meeting headed by children's reporter Gordon Sloan, Mrs Williams was asked to hand over the little girl who was, by this stage, inconsolable and frightened of the strangers who were trying to pry her little hands from her mother's neck. Mrs T, or Mrs Thomas as she will be referred to in this episode, was a friend of Mrs Williams and went to the social work department on November 7th with cards for the children. The social department were allowed to keep the Williams children in care for three weeks at a time under the emergency orders, after which there would be another panel meeting to discuss the case. In the meantime, Mrs Williams tried everything she could to get her children returned to her. Neighbours and friends from South Ronaldsey helped to write letters to the youngsters, counsellors and the social services department. Gifts were also sent for Christmas, but there was no direct correspondence between the children and their mother. Because the Williams children were taken under the belief that there had been allegations of abuse, the letters sent to them had to be addressed to social workers. Anything that could have been interpreted as an inhibitor on disclosures by the children were kept from them, including letters and gifts, on the chance something would trigger them to stay silent. Their mother and friends of the family were forbidden from mentioning the proceedings or their care order, so they wrote about mundane things and tried to remind the children that they were loved and missed. The people most involved in trying to get the Williams children home were the Reverend Morris Mackenzie, the Thomas family, although this is not their real name, a local GP, Mr McEwen who had been a teacher to some of the children, and his wife Mrs McEwen. Mrs Thomas, who was close to the family and a good friend of Mrs Williams, had written to her son. Known only as B.W., he will be referred to as Billy in this episode. Billy, who was then nine, was reminded by Mrs. Thomas of a time when he helped her out. She wrote, Dear B, the best. Remember how you fixed the heater for me in the caravan? That was a good day. I love you. Sue Miller, the family's social worker, felt this was inappropriate and questioned the woman's motives towards the boy. At the panel hearings, the place of safety orders were extended for another three weeks and the children were questioned again. This process continued until February 1991. On February 4th, Jeanette Chisholm was asked to act as coordinator for the Williams children. The children were repeatedly questioned by RSS PCC worker Liz McLean and Constable Linda Williamson in what was called disclosure therapy. The children were suspected of being victims of abuse, but there was no direct line of questioning. The interviews were to either establish what abuse took place 
or prove that there had been no further abuse since the children's father had been imprisoned. Jeanette Chisholm met one of the children shortly after being appointed as coordinator. Public accounts only ever refer to this child as M.W. However, she would later identify herself as May. Chisholm said of the meeting, I was not told that the children were about to disclose, but when I met May I could see this as self-evident. She reminded me of a steam kettle about to come to the boil. She was talking to everyone she wanted to about the abuse she had suffered. My teachers did not want to probe, and this lack of interest had the effect of closing her down. On February 6th, it was alleged that May Williams had said something that was consistent with what her older sister had said before. May described how those people mentioned went to a quarry at night and stood in a circle. The minister, who the children identified simply as Morris, stood in the centre wearing a cloak, and he would use a long hook like a shepherd's crook to rein a child into the centre where they would be abused by the adults present. Supposedly, it was disclosed that Reverend Mackenzie was known as the Master, or the Prime Minister. In one of the interviews, May said, Morris makes us run into a circle. He stands in the middle. May then drew a picture of a stick man with a crook, standing inside a circle of people. May remarked, That's Morris in the middle. He was wearing a long black cloak with a hood and a black mask covering his eyes. He looks like you when you are dancing. He pulls you towards him. He is growing a beard. We don't have to talk about the dirty stuff. May continued to mention the quarry, which she described as being in a field. She then recounted that the man she called Morris had sexually assaulted a woman and some of the children. The following week, another of the Williams children known only as QW, who we will call Quinn, spoke about something similar. The next day, her brother Billy said the same thing. Constable Williamson had referred to Quinn and Billy as, quote, weak links, in that they seemed the most likely to provide information. Nine-year-old Billy Williams said that the adults in attendance all wore long clothing. Everybody danced to the song The Power of the Night until Reverend Mackenzie picked somebody with his hook. According to Billy, the minister known as Morris hooked his sister May and sexually abused her. I did not look when this was going on, Billy explained. Within days, two of the other Williams children allegedly told social workers information that led them to believe there was ritualistic sexual abuse occurring in late-night meetings at a quarry on South Ronaldsea. The children apparently named adults from the community including the Reverend Morris McKenzie and the adults of four families. 
There were the McEwans and the Thomases, along with two others, known as the B family and the H family. The B family will be referred to as the Browns, and the H family as the Hills. Not all of the Williams' children in care shared the same story, and some said that no such abuse occurred. This included two of the children known only as A.W. and L.W. Even May Williams, who was allegedly the first of the younger children to speak about the abuse, would eventually say on February 20th, Did you know all of this was a lie? In reference to what she had said, but this new confession was ignored. The Williams children had been brought to a play centre to be questioned. The same children who had grown up without toys or the freedom to be young were then denied being able to play until they had answered the questions asked during their disclosure therapy. Some of the children have since made statements that they were coerced into giving specific answers or had been asked leading questions, prompted and even bribed into saying what they thought the interviewer wanted to hear. Due to the unprecedented nature of the allegations and the number of children that would need to be taken into care, the Orkney Social Services requested the assistance of other Scottish local authorities, such as social workers from Strathclyde. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On February 26, 1991, a briefing was held at a nuclear bunker at the Orkney Island Council headquarters. Seven social workers from Strathclyde were in attendance, as were police officers and Orkney social workers. Detective Inspector James Heddle allegedly told those present, quote, Without hard evidence, we have nothing. The social workers from other local authorities believed that the police and Orkney social workers had concrete evidence that supported the allegations of ritualistic abuse. Still, once they were at the briefing, they found out they in fact had very little, other than the children's statements. The following morning, February 27th, 20 cars drove into South Ronaldsey before 7am. Teams of social workers and members of the local police force were sent to different addresses. They had search warrants and place of safety orders to recover evidence and the children from four homes. Officers were told that there had been alleged ritualistic abuse in a quarry. Those in attendance had reportedly worn disguises, including a cowboy costume. Social workers believed that there was some connection to turtles and rainbows, as communication sent to the Williams children had repeated references to both. Apparently, May Williams had said the other children wore turtle costumes at the gatherings. Detective Inspector Heddle had run background checks on the parents of the Brown, Hill, Thomas and McEwen families. None of the adults had any criminal history or contact with social services. At the St. Margaret's Hope Church, where Mrs. Williams had sought sanctuary on the night her children were taken from her three months earlier, police confronted Reverend Morris Mackenzie, who later said, At seven o'clock in the morning, there was a rap-tap-tap on the door. It was only when I got down to the bottom of the stairs I found a police officer with a search warrant and found out about the pitiful allegation that I'd been hooking children into a circle and abusing them. They took away papers and some of my vestments. It has come as a terrible shock. D.I. Heddle told his fellow officers to search all of the homes for anything that might substantiate the children's claims like costumes, books, crooks and videos. Sergeant Sutherland was one of the officers sent to the manse where the Reverend and his wife lived. The authorities searched the property and removed a number of items, 
including a black cloak with clasps that depicted a lion's head, a brownie's uniform, a broken cross, and animal masks. The Reverend told them that the cloak was a funeral cloak. It had not been hidden in any way. It was hanging in the vestry with the rest of his ministerial attire. Officers searched extensively for a shepherd's crook, but one could not be found. There was a hot water bottle on the minister's bed, which was labelled with Billy Williams' name and the words, The Big Boy. Reverend Mackenzie told the officers that he was in poor health and suffering from angina. The local doctor, Dr. Broadhurst, was called to administer medication before the reverend was taken to the police station for questioning. Mr. and Mrs. Thomas had moved to South Ronaldsea in 1988. They were Jewish and had lived in Israel until 1984 when they moved to the UK. They had two children, a 12-year-old boy and a 9-year-old girl. The Thomas children, known only as BT and MT, will be called Ben and Matilda. At 7am, the family were awoken by a loud knocking on their door. Mr. Thomas looked out of the window and saw a man who claimed to be a police officer. Mr. Thomas was instructed to open the door. The police officers and social workers were dressed in plain clothes, but flashed their ID cards as they filed into the property. The team told Mr. and Mrs. Thomas that they were taking their son and daughter as there had been allegations of lewd and libidinous activity. Mrs. Thomas was good friends with Mrs. Williams and was often at the Williams' home when social workers came by. Mrs. Williams had not felt as though she could articulate herself well enough to advocate for her children, so she often had friends with her for support. The parents, although shocked by the early morning arrival of the social workers and police, had felt like something was going to happen in the weeks beforehand. A journalist had told them that an RSS PCC source had said that disclosures had been made about all of Mrs. Williams' friends, and Mrs. Williams had been told, quote, Your friends are not helping you. The lead social worker Sue Miller had concerns about the appropriateness of letters Mrs. Thomas had sent to Billy, one of the Williams children who had been taken into care the previous November. Apparently some of the Williams children had alleged that Mrs. Thomas had sexually abused Billy, the nine-year-old boy. They also said that Mrs. Thomas had intercourse with Reverend Mackenzie while she was dressed as a cowgirl. Ben Thomas, the couple's son, was crying in his bed and said that it was just like what happened to the Williams children and that he would never see his family again. As Mrs. Thomas believed it was her being accused of abuse, she asked if it was possible for her to leave the home so the children could stay 
but she was told this was not an option. Downstairs, Matilda Thomas clung to her father and cried as he brushed her hair. Mr. and Mrs. Thomas's son and daughter were taken from the house almost immediately. They were not allowed to have breakfast or bring any of their belongings. Mr. and Mrs. Thomas were then brought to the police station for questioning and their house was searched. Mrs. Thomas had to be seen by Dr. Broadhurst, the local GP, as she was so distressed. The children were taken to a hostel at Kirkwall Grammar School, where they had to wait for a chartered flight that would take them to the mainland. Twelve-year-old Ben Thomas asked if all of the children of the people who had supported the Williams family would be taken away. He insisted his parents had never hurt him or his sister. Ben was so distraught throughout the day an accompanying social worker was brought to tears on the flight. Sandy and William McEwen have sought to identify themselves in the years since the events of this episode unfolded. They were members of the Quaker faith. William and Sandy McEwen were teachers and had helped Mrs. Williams and her children. Mr. McEwen said that a gang of police and social workers arrived at their house and told them that they had been accused of lewd acts and libidinous behaviour and their sons were being taken into care. The eight people at their door arrived in plain clothing at the same time more officers went to other houses in South Ronaldsea. The phone rang and when Mr McEwen answered a voice said, They are here, before an officer unplugged the phone and told Mr McEwen he was not allowed to contact anyone. One of the social workers noted that this made him question if Mr McEwen was a possible ringleader. The McEwans also had an inkling something like this would happen. A few weeks prior, a journalist from Scotland on Sunday had contacted them to say disclosures had been made about all of Mrs. Williams' friends. The McEwans' youngest son, publicly referred to as J.M., or James as he will be called in this episode, had asked in the days before if he would be taken away like the Williams' children because Mrs. McEwen had been so supportive of Mrs. Williams. So when the social workers arrived to do just that, Mrs. McEwen had to wake her son and tell him his worst fears had come true. He was going to be taken away. The McEwen's eldest son, known as S.M., or Sam as we will call him, had woken up and heard the commotion downstairs. A 15-year-old contemplated jumping from the window to escape, but did not want to leave his younger brother alone. As they had in other properties, police officers searched for evidence that could support the claims made about the family's involvement in ritualistic child abuse. The McEwen's children were taken from the house without any belongings in under 10 minutes. 
When the children were removed, one of the social workers noted that Mrs McEwen shouted something that he described as a, quote, battle cry, which did not fit with what he expected from a middle-class religious English person. She had shouted to her boys, Remember who you are. Mr and Mrs McEwen were taken to Stromness to be interviewed by the police. They were not allowed to return home until 4pm that afternoon. While they were being questioned, their sons were taken to the airport to go to the mainland with the other children who had been taken into care. Sam McEwen believed that they were only going for the day to answer questions. But when the flight landed, the 15-year-old hugged his 11-year-old brother goodbye. They were being sent to different foster placements. An official from the RSS PCC, Leslie Hood, broke up the embrace immediately. As the brothers cried, they clasped hands. This was later described by the officials as being a, quote, Masonic hand gesture. Young James McEwen was taken to a farm on Ferentosh. James's family lived on a farm in South Ronaldsea. The Strathclyde social worker who went with him to the foster home was uncomfortable with the placement. The 11-year-old would have to share a room and sometimes a bed with a 15-year-old child the foster family was also caring for. James's older brother Sam was sent to Glasgow. Mr. and Mrs. Brown, not their real names, moved from England to South Ronaldsey in 1976. They had three children, two girls, an 11-year-old and 13-year-old, and one 8-year-old boy. Public accounts only refer to them by their initials. However, we will call them Emma, Wendy and Stephen. Mr. Brown was often away for work, so lived in England for most of the year. Mrs. Brown stayed in South Ronaldsey with the children. They lived close to the McEwen family farm, in a house with a converted caravan outside the front of the property. The two girls had bedrooms in the caravan. On the morning, social workers and the police descended on the island. Mrs. Brown had woken up early to make sure her eldest daughter was ready for the school bus. When she went back to the house, she heard cars pull up outside, and as she looked out the window, her heart sank. Like many of the parents, Mrs. Brown had heard whispers that something like this may happen. Strathclyde social worker Rab Murphy was on the team that was sent to the Brown household. When the police knocked on the door, Mrs Brown began shouting at them and calling them evil. She asked why she had not been allowed to prepare the children and warn them what was going to happen. Wendy, who had been woken by her mother moments earlier, heard all of the noise and shouting and ran into the house. Social workers tried to race after her up the stairs, but she managed to lock herself in the bathroom. 
when Mrs. Brown followed the commotion, her daughter Emma woke up. Her sister was no longer in the caravan they shared. Instead, social workers had come into the room and told her to get dressed. As Emma was led from the caravan to a waiting car, Mrs. Brown ran and tried to hold on to her 11-year-old daughter. Officers intervened and she begged them to wait so she could get her daughter's asthma medication. Her son, eight-year-old Stephen, was at the top of the stairs crying. Social workers were trying to coax his older sister out of the locked bathroom. and The little boy was confused, having been woken up by the commotion. Mrs. Brown brought him downstairs where she helped Stephen get dressed. The boy was sobbing, saying he didn't want to leave, and Mrs. Brown was berating the team of workers who watched her try and comfort her son. Wendy was still locked in the bathroom. From behind the door, she insisted that her parents had never abused her or her siblings, but she was told the police were going to force the door open so she unlocked it. Wendy sat on the floor in tears, concerned for her mother, who would be alone in the house as her father was working away from home. Mrs. Brown was not allowed to call her husband or anyone else before the children were taken away. As Wendy left with her siblings, she put her arm around her mother and asked her if she was all right. Wendy was led away, while her mother crumbled to the floor in distress. As with the other houses, the police searched for any evidence that may support the allegations made, and Mrs. Brown was taken to the police station where she was held until 4pm. A neighbour had to phone Mr. Brown and tell him what had happened. The children were taken to wait for the flight. Social worker Rab Murphy briefly interviewed them. Stephen Brown was told he was being taken somewhere safe because it was believed that adults were hurting him. He responded that he did not know what the problem was, that it was not his mother's fault. The eight-year-old assured the social worker that his father would come back in two days and sort everything out. His sister Emma was taken for an interview next. She had seemed at ease and was almost happy. Emma thought that she was being taken because she was being bullied at school, not for any allegations made against her mother. The eldest, Wendy, knew more about what had happened to the Williams children. She expressed that she did not want to go on the plane to the mainland because the Williams children had not come back. In Glasgow, young Stephen was sent to one house and his sisters were sent to another, as it was believed that the young boy may have been abusing his older sisters. Their mother, Mrs. Brown, had allegedly been at the late-night quarry gatherings, dressed in a white sheet and known to the Williams children as the White Ghost. (laughs) 
Mr. and Mrs. H, or Mr. and Mrs. Hill as they will be called in this episode, had moved from Somerset to Orkney in 1989. They had two children, a ten-year-old boy and an eight-year-old girl. We will refer to them as Peter and Tilly. When the team sent to the Hill family home knocked on the door, they were met by Mrs. Hill, who was wearing her pyjamas. Unlike the other households, the police had no instructions to detain the parents, nor were they accused of abuse. The only information the social workers had about the family were the drawings some of the Williams children had done while in disclosure therapy. Mrs Hill was highly agitated and called her husband to come downstairs. Mr Hill had been off work for months because he was suffering from a debilitating brain tumour. His son Peter heard what was being said downstairs and woke his sister. They locked themselves in the bathroom and had to be persuaded to open the door by their mother. Because the situation was so tense and because the team had no idea about the family's background or Mr Hill's illness, officers were more lenient in their approach. The children were permitted to have breakfast with their parents. Peter was too overcome with emotion to eat and his mother and father had to take turns consoling him. The entire family was under immense pressure. Tears streamed down their cheeks. As with the other children, Peter and Tilly were taken to the airport and boarded a chartered flight. On the plane, Peter spoke about the Williams children. The social worker told him it was to keep them safe from people who would hurt them. But Peter said that no one had hurt him. Like the other children, the siblings were also split up when they landed. Tilly was placed with elderly foster parents who had a lot of other children to take care of, while Peter was placed elsewhere. By 8.30am, nine children from four homes on South Ronaldsea had been taken into care under place of safety orders. All of the parents bar the Hill family were detained for questioning. No arrests were made. One of the mothers said, We drove off to Kirkwall and decanted at the police station. I was asked about Maurice McKenzie dancing in a quarry which astonished me because I said that he was an unwell man, and the idea of him dancing at all is grotesque. Like the Williamses, the other families had not been living in Orkney for long. They had all lent their support to Mrs Williams after her children were taken into care. Some of them had written letters to the Williams' children or sent gifts, none of which were passed on. Instead, the letters and presents were collected as evidence. The other nine children who were now taken had a different history to the Williams siblings. Their parents were predominantly considered middle-class professionals who could advocate for themselves. Mrs Williams was not in this position. 
the parents of the nine children organised a meeting the following day, spearheaded by local resident Dr Helen Martini. As the parents spoke about squads of social workers and police officers coming to their houses before dawn to take their children away, Mrs Williams tried to talk. She said, I just wanted to say the allegations of a satanic sex ring are alleged to have come from my children. But they aren't true. None of them. It's the Orkney Social Work Department. They want to take my children off me, and they'll use anything to get their way. At first they said there was older sibling abuse, but they couldn't find any evidence. So now they are making up lies about a sex ring. Despite the earlier assistance given to Mrs. Williams and her children, their supporters were now without their own children. It was believed the outcome was a direct result of that support. Most of the attendees in the meeting agreed that they were dealing with two different cases, and the focus turned to the nine children who had been taken, not the Williams children. Mrs. Williams' children had a long history with social workers and their father had been convicted of abuse. Their case was not as heavily publicised in the media. To the public, it was more puzzling to read about parents who had never been on the social workers' radar before, nor had their children's doctor or teachers been spoken to about the alleged abuse. The parents of the nine children set up a support group called the South Ronaldsea Action Group and spoke with the press to raise awareness of their plight. Reverend Morris Mackenzie, who was at the centre of the allegations of ritualistic child abuse, said that the communication between the local community and the social work department had broken down. This led to the community to distrust the people who were supposed to protect their children. Reverend Mackenzie explained that the local authority were a very secretive group of people and expressed concern that they had not consulted him as the local minister when allegations of any organised abuse had arisen. While the parents told their story again and again in the press in the first few days, Interim children's panel reporter Gordon Sloan stayed silent and did not shed any light on why so many children had been ripped from their homes. He later spoke about the media presence on the small island community following what was dubbed pre-dawn raids on February 27th. Sloan said, The evidence appeared sound. The test that we have to apply is the balance of probability in these cases. The information seems sufficiently sound that we should be concerned about it. Our role is really as a receiver of information. The people will have to be initially convinced. The social department in this case and the police and indeed the court, because it was a court that granted place of safety orders in respect of the children who were subsequently removed from their homes. It seemed remarkable that the national and some of the world press managed to get themselves to Orkney at the speed they did. 
Our view was that the acts that took place were ritualistic in that there was people dressed. There was music. There was dancing. Children and adults in a circle. For instance, with children pulled into the middle of the circle. And then they were abused by someone who, from memory, was known as the master. And then either the abuse was actual abuse, or it was simulated sexual abuse of these children. Once the families had decided that they were going public, then perhaps we should have defended what we were doing and explained, and I think we lost the press battle without a doubt. The local authority had not been prepared for the masses of journalists who flew to Orkney to cover the story. Mr McEwen, whose two sons were taken, provided his thoughts. The media came to us expecting a dirty vicar story. At the end of the public meeting on the Friday, they seemed to realise this was not the case, that here was a real injustice. If the media showed a bias, and at times I think they did, it was probably because the human reality got to them. We could not organise them. We are not Saatchi and Saatchi. There had not been as much interest in the Williams children. The focus was on the second case of the nine children removed from the other families. The sudden influx of journalists and camera crews coming to Orkney to cover the story apparently impacted the police investigation too. Detective Inspector Heddle said that officers were not able to search for the quarry where all of the lewd acts were said to have occurred because of the, quote, high press presence. D.I. Heddle said, It understandably whipped up quite a degree of hysteria among the people. Had that not been the case, I would have been free to go about my business on South Ronaldsea. The police had collected what they thought could be evidence from the homes of the Brown, McEwen, Thomas and Hill families. Some of the items removed from the properties included a Nepalese sculpture of a couple making love, a leather cowboy hat, a plastic Halloween mask, books of erotic poetry, life jackets, a relaxation tape and even envelopes from one of the boys used to collect money from the Tooth Fairy. One of the envelopes had a sketch of a cartoon devil. Williams' children were labelled as being wild in the press. They were openly blamed for the claims made against the other parents. The media began to refer to the accusations as satanic. This word had never been mentioned in any of the social work reports. Still, the situation carried a lot of similarities to a case in which other parents were accused of satanic ritual abuse. The parents on South Ronaldsea were referred to Judy Parry, who had helped defend other parents from Rochdale, Greater Manchester, in a similar case. In 1990, almost 20 children were removed from their homes in the early morning by social workers who believed there was evidence of ritualistic abuse. The parents, working-class people living on a council estate, were accused of killing babies, abusing their children and taking part in occult rituals. 
is stemmed from a young boy telling his teachers that after he went to sleep at night, he was taken somewhere else and witnessed abuse. He had been explaining his nightmares, but it was taken as evidence. The case was later dismissed, but some children were not returned home for years. It appeared the same mistakes seemed to be repeating themselves in the Northern Isles. A panel hearing was held on March 5th, the last day of the seven-day care order that had been imposed. The parents had no communication with their children beforehand and were only informed the night before the hearing. Most flights were booked out because of the number of reporters coming to Orkney and the solicitor for the parents was delayed and would not make the hearing on time. After a local MP spoke with council members, they agreed to postpone the panel until the solicitor arrived. At the hearing, the parents were told about the nature of the allegations against them, but no further details were provided. The families denied the claims and requested their children be returned home immediately. Officials were accused of conducting a witch hunt and only targeting the families because along with Reverend Mackenzie, they helped the Williams family. Around 50 people had gathered outside to protest the hearing. A number carried banners with slogans such as Children Punished Not Protected and Children Back to Orkney Now. Many of the parents broke down in tears. Nevertheless, a panel consisting of two women and one man determined that the children had been exposed to moral danger and the care order was extended. Reverend Derek Edwards, a Baptist minister, asked if he could take care of some of the children to keep them in Orkney, but his request was refused. It was decided during the panel that the children would be kept in care for another 21 days. Their parents tried to appeal this to the sheriff, who acted similarly to a judge over panel hearings, but this appeal was denied. A petition was subsequently organised to demand an inquiry into the child abuse allegations. The community of Orkney was asked to sign the petition that would then be delivered to the Prime Minister. While their parents were trying to get them home to Orkney, the children who had been taken to the mainland were interviewed by the police and members of the RSS PCC. The children were separated, with Peter and Tilly Hill James McEwen and Ben and Matilda Thomas being housed in the Highland region. Stephen, Emma and Wendy Brown and Sam McEwen were placed in Strathclyde. Accounts of the interviews vary significantly between the interviewer's recollection and the children's own accounts. Each child was interviewed by a member of the RSS PCC and a police officer as part of a joint approach. 
Ten-year-old Peter Hill was interviewed on ten occasions during his time in care. Present were Liz McLean and an officer. McLean apparently supported controversial interview techniques, specifically those which could identify ritualistic or satanic abuse of children. Liz McLean used abuse indicators during the interviews, one of which was that if a child denied being abused, they were likely to have been abused. There were no standards for this kind of questioning at the time. The social workers and the police were not equipped to conduct the type of interviews they carried out. Social workers were not trained in evidential and interview practices. The police were used to dealing with reported allegations of abuse, not trying to get a child to disclose alleged abuse. During the interviews, according to the official's scarce notes, young Peter Hill supposedly spoke about Morris hitting him with a belt, being covered in fake blood and being carried to a hill in a box. Peter said that McLean had told him, quote, We heard things about you from other children. He was asked explicitly about a fancy dress party and over and over again, he was questioned about people standing in a circle. Peter's eight-year-old sister Tilly was interviewed after a physical exam had been carried out to see if there was any evidence of sexual abuse. She told the police officer present that a man named the Prime Minister had hurt her bottom. Over the course of eight interviews, she allegedly spoke about travelling to a field in a car at night where people were standing in a circle. She was asked who was in the middle of the circle and said the Prime Minister. When she was asked what he had done, she claimed that he pulled little girls into the middle of the circle and hurt them. Tilly was asked who the minister of the church was and she identified Reverend Morris Mackenzie. She later told the interviewers that what had happened in the circle had occurred in England, not Orkney. According to Tilly, she was interviewed many times and only had, quote, five days' peace. She said that the interviews were always about the vicar who supposedly hurt people. 11-year-old James McEwen was interviewed five times. He was noted as being hostile and denied any abuse took place. He said that the only reason he had been taken away from his home was because he had supported the Williams family. 12-year-old Ben Thomas was interviewed by Liz McLean and a police officer five times. He expressed that he did not want to attend the interviews and denied anything had happened to him. The boy later said that the interviewers had told him other children had said he was present when bad things had happened in a circle. Then maintained his belief that he was taken because he supported the Williams family. He felt as though the interviewers were trying to convince him that something had happened. And Thomas's eight-year-old sister Matilda was interviewed seven times. 
she denied being the victim of any abuse. The girl did say in passing that she had gone to a meadow before and to a wedding. She was asked to relate the two and was questioned who would be standing in the middle of a circle in a meadow. She answered that it would probably be the groom or a minister. Matilda was then asked what a minister would wear and she answered trousers, black shoes, a white shirt and a black waistcoat. A further question inquired what he would wear if it was cold. She suggested a cloak. Eventually, as the days went on, officials added to this description to end up with a drawing that apparently showed a circle of people with a minister in the centre wearing a black cloak with a lion's head clasp. When asked what the minister might do, Matilda said he would pull a little girl into the circle to dance with him. For reasons unknown, this drawing of the circle of people was not retained. The children in the Highlands were also interviewed. Sisters Emma and Wendy Brown were questioned separately. 11-year-old Emma was said to have been aggressive at the start of her 10 interviews. She said that no one had hurt her, and it was just the English children who had been taken away. When she was asked about Halloween, Emma then drew a picture of people in a circle. Eventually, she sketched a map of South Ronaldsey and the houses where the people she knew lived. 13-year-old Wendy said she was repeatedly asked the same questions and denied she had been abused. She was shown pictures of a circle and a turtle, but did not understand what they were supposed to refer to and told the interviewer this. The girl's younger brother was interviewed on ten occasions. He had been kept separately as social workers were unsure if he was abusive. At first he did not say much, but allegedly remarked that Mrs Thomas had hurt one of the Williams' children. He later said that he thought the interviewers were prompting him to provide the answers they wanted to hear. The oldest child, 15-year-old Sam McEwen, was kept in a residential school in Gillsland. He was interviewed seven times and denied any abuse had taken place. Suspicions were laid out to the teenager, insinuating that he was an abuser. Detective Inspector Heddle and another officer, D.S. Gray, had taken a 400-mile round trip from Kirkwall to interview Sam in late March. D.I. Heddle said that it was because the police felt that Sam would be embarrassed to be interviewed by two females, as he saw Leslie Hood's name on the list. Leslie Hood is a man. He had been among those who took part in the extraction of the children on February 27th, so some believed that the police were going to interview the 15-year-old in an attempt to get evidence. Reflecting on what happened, Sam McEwen later stated, 
They said, tell me about this, or I know you have been doing this with this person, and you were like, no, I haven't, don't be ridiculous. And this would go on for some time. You want to be obliging as a child with adults. Then you start to get an idea that you don't necessarily want to have done that, that maybe you were foolish to have done it, and you felt stupid. Later, speaking about the interviews, some of the other children indicated that they had been coerced into making statements. One of them, who was then nine years old, said, I was put in this room with a social worker and a police lady. They said there was this man, and with a massive big hook. And I think, first of all, it was a fire in the middle of a quarry, and he was standing on the outside of it and we're all running around it, and he took us all in or something. I'd say it was all lies, because it was all lies. It was all new to me when they asked me this. I'd agree with them, but that was only like after hours of questioning over what happened, and I just agreed with them because it was all so boring, and just so annoying to hear the same questions all over and over again. None of the evidentiary drawings were attained. The interviewers knew what the Williams children had said in their disclosure therapy and openly admitted to believing it was the truth. They also knew that without any physical evidence, they would have to rely on the corroboration of the Williams children's statements with testimony from the other children. None of the children from the four families were allowed to speak with their parents during the five weeks they were kept in care. At the start of each interview, they were told they were being rehomed because the social workers believed that they had been abused. Officials wanted them to talk about it. Eventually, the children learned that if they got the answers right, the questioning would end. Those who conducted the interview saw no issue with coercive or leading questions, saying that it was sometimes proper and necessary to provide children with, quote, pegs to hang matters on. This was in reference to the interviewers showing the children drawings of a circle that had been made in previous interviews in order to prompt them to elaborate. Some of the officials had conducted over four interviews a day, Liz McLean was present for 39 in total. McLean felt that a child's denial of abuse or retraction of a statement about abuse was often evidence that it had in fact occurred. One of the boys who had been taken into care said of the interviews and what he would need to sketch. It would have to be a man. You always had to draw a man. So every time you went... It was always going to be a man you drew, and you knew that before you went in. And when you got to the man, they started narrowing it down. Asking questions like, did they touch you anywhere? And you would say, obviously, no. Then it ended up being your brother, this man. And you would say, no. And then they would ask you this question repeatedly, until you finally realised the only way to stop them asking this question was to say yes. The parents of the children convened following the panel hearing. Mrs McEwen told reporters, 
I have heard the allegations will be put to us. We will refute them because we have not been involved in ritual abuse. We don't know if our boys are together. We are not allowed any communication with them. We have less rights than a convicted prisoner. Paul Lee, the Director of Social Work at Orkney Council, defended the actions of social workers, saying, We were acting on information received about allegations relating to offences. It would not be appropriate to discuss the allegations at this stage, but they have to be investigated. Another children's panel was held in Kirkwall after the 21-day extension period ended before the local authorities and police could conduct a thorough investigation. The matter was brought before the sheriff's court. As the parents had refused to accept the grounds for issuing the warrant that extended the children's detention, it was brought before the sheriff for him to decide if the grounds for referral had been established. In Scotland, a case cannot proceed in the child protection system unless the parents and the children accept the grounds for referral at their panel hearing. If they disagree, then the ground must be established in a court of law. This proof hearing was open to the public in early April 1991. Sheriff Kelby criticised the practices of the social workers. He said that he had listened to the recorded interviews and believed that the children were in more danger from the repeated examinations designed to break them down and admit to having been abused than they were in their homes. Sheriff Kelby also said the statements made by the three Williams children which prompted the subsequent removal of nine children from their homes could not have been made spontaneously. He said that the statement showed evidence that the children had been coached. The sheriff threw out the allegations and called the case proceedings by Orkney Child Care Authorities flawed. The parents of the children went straight to Paul Lee's office. He was the director of social services. The children's panel reporter Gordon Sloan and the lead social worker on the case, Sue Miller, were already inside discussing what the decision meant for their warrants and custody of the children. A crowd of dozens appeared at the Director of Social Services building and tried to push to be let inside. Camera crews captured the chaotic and tense scenes. The parents demanded the immediate return of their children, and when Sue Miller attempted to call the police, Mrs McEwen held her back and prevented her from contacting anyone, as had been done to them on the morning the children were taken. After five weeks, the nine children were flown home by nightfall to a crowd of over 100 people. Mrs McEwen said of the emotional reunion. When you get your children back after everything, you can't remember what you said. It's just the words that are important. And you hug them. And you cry. And you hug them. 
the children's panel reporter Gordon Sloan successfully appealed the sheriff's judgment. Sloan believed that Sheriff Kelby had been wrong to mock the evidence and dismiss the case so publicly. It meant that the case could not be investigated any further because the coverage of Sheriff Kelby's judgment had been so damning. The children had already been returned home, so officials did not file for new place of safety orders. Following this, Sheriff Kelby's judgment was labelled as breaching the laws of natural justice by Lord President Hope in June 1991. Sheriff Kelby was forbidden from having anything more to do with the proceedings. He was told that he failed in his duty to Gordon Sloan, the children's panel reporter, and the families involved. Sheriff Kelby did admit he was emotionally invested in the case when he made the judgment. He stated, It was absolutely plain to me that these children were suffering a grave injustice and to do nothing would have been to remain a party to that injustice. The law at that stage required to be bent. If it took someone's head to go on the block to stop what was happening, mine was as good as any. Maybe you can take the risk of being wrong in the law on the very odd occasion, if you are going to be right in human terms. A judicial inquiry was ordered by Ian Lang, the Scottish Secretary. The inquiry would be held under Scottish High Court Judge Lord Clyde and was limited to exploring the conduct of those involved, not the evidence of abuse. This meant that neither the parents nor the social workers would get the chance to prove or disprove the allegations of ritualistic abuse. The inquiry would also not explore the case of the Williams children's removal, many of whom had still not been returned to their mother. This is the end of episode 29. To hear more on the Orkney child abuse scandal, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view. An endless field of wildflowers. Or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.